Welcome to 1A, a podcast from First Presbyterian Church of Columbia, South Carolina. 1A is a podcast designed to take a brief but in-depth look at counseling issues from a pastoral perspective. Reverend Squires is the pastor of counseling here at First Presbyterian Church. This is our first episode in a new series dealing on sexuality and sexual temptation. In this episode, Reverend Squires and I discuss the positives of where we find ourselves in our current cultural attitudes towards sexuality. If you have any comments about our show or a question about something you hear on this episode, please don't hesitate to contact us. You can find all of our contact info on our website at firstpresscolumbia.org. If you would like to stay updated on when a new episode is released, download our app. You can do so by searching for First Presbyterian Church of Columbia SC in the app store of your choice. We hope this ministry is a blessing to you and to those around you. Let's get to the conversation. Welcome back to 1A. I'm your host, Josh Squires, and joining me again is my biblical counseling intern, Josh Adair. Josh, thanks for being with me. Josh, thanks so much for having me again, man. It's a joy to be back on this with you. And we get to be in person. We are still socially distanced. We're yes, six feet apart. That's right. But as things kind of loosen a little bit, restrictions here, you and I are able to be in the exact same room talking about this, which is exciting. That is exciting, brother. I say this. Let's talk about what it is that we are now endeavoring to explore on this podcast. We just got done talking about depression. And so now we're going to look at sex and sexuality. You know, two really easy topics back to back. <laughs> back to back, yeah. Let's <laughs> throw a softball in there somewhere. Yeah, so, and the reason why this has come up is because this issue of sex and sexuality has been a driving factor, not only culturally for, well, really since the 60s, but its expression has been at the center of a lot of counseling and counseling questions since the COVID season. Sure. Those who are single and by themselves have found themselves struggling with this. And so a number of my sessions have centered around feeling lonely. And then that activity that many in the modern day use to combat their loneliness, as sinful as it is, the use of pornography. Sure. And so I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about sex and sexuality and help people who have continued to struggle with that through this season. Absolutely. Absolutely. So so where do you want me to go ahead and just fire off just with fire questions? Away. Yep, All you got right, questions. Josh. I've got maybe answers. <laughs> the perfect counselor answer. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> well, Josh, as we were talking and planning for this episode or this series, I was realizing, you know, there's no more hot button issue right now than sexuality in general and our broader culture. Right. With things like the transgender m- movement, yep. the LGBT rights movement, uh, sex is really viewed through a lens of a civil liberty now. Yeah. And that informs a lot of our thinking about it. But even as I was thinking about sexuality in general, on how our culture speaks of sexuality, I don't know that I have ever heard how our culture might actually view sexuality in any sort of positive light. Hmm. So so how is our current cultural view of sexuality something that can be helpful to us as Christians? Yes, yes. I thought we could start there because we want to begin to define our language apart from that really rancorous political sort of discourse that right. surrounds it. Right. And we also want to begin to operate within the bounds of what is it the ninth commandment don't bear false witness yeah yeah <laughs> and so how can how can we what does our culture say about sexuality first what are some general attitudes yep and then we could ask what about this could be positive that we can pull from our culture's view of sexuality great questions and you've done quite a bit of research on this as well so feel free to jump in here and sure. and 
tell us what you've learned and, and read about. In general, right now, in the culture, sex and sexual appetite are seen as something that is your right to express. In fact, it quashes something of your personhood. Sure. It inhibits you. It, it's choosing to be disabled, if you will. Sure. By not engaging in sex and sexuality. One of the books that I had to read last year at this time, took a class on marriage and human sexuality, was on the transgender movement. And the book was written by Ann Travers. The mm -hmm. name of the book was The Transgeneration. It was awarded the 2018 Book of the Year by the American Publishers Association in the fields of sociology, criminology, and anthropology. Sure. So three large fields. This was the best book they could find in all three fields. Man. And so when I quote her and talk about what she says, the reason I say that is to say this isn't some off-the-wall, far-left, you mm. know, only a certain small percentage would ever think this way. This is becoming mainstream and those on the left see this as positive progress, not negative progress. Sure. And so one of the things that she highlights is that she thinks the idea that we would try to have childhood innocency, that we would try and keep our children from being sexualized, sure. is a Western myth. And that what we should do is help them understand their sexuality as early as possible. She even encourages children exploring kink communities. Oh, wow. In order that they might communicate with people who have all kinds of various sexual appetites so that they might understand what their sexual appetite is and begin as early as possible to fulfill those sexual appetites because they are something that deserve to be filled. And that's Man. really the it's it's the extreme version, but really is the version of sex and sexuality that so many imbibe. There's no way I could ever be a complete and full being without having sexual expression. And to inhibit my sexual expression is to do damage to myself. Yeah, that is incredible incredibly scary yes yes it's incredibly scary yeah to know that that is the way that people are looking at sexuality and where we're headed and you just you need to be aware that th that sort of sex as like you said a civil liberty something yes. that needs to be protected and explored sure it is really becoming more and more the warp, warp and wolf of the culture that we find ourselves in. Yeah, that that brings up a good good resource that I found for for this in terms of how it even began the process of becoming a sexual liberty. There's a book by she's a professor at Binghamton University. Her name is Professor Leanne Wheeler, and I was actually I was reading Tim Challey's blog a number of years ago. He recommended this resource as a as a contemporary perspective. It's called How Sex Became a Civil Liberty. Interesting. And it's a 20th century survey of how how we got to the place to where the people and the presuppositions, if you will, of how we got to the current environment where sex is viewed through this lens of being a form of personal expression that's central to our personhood, right. as you were saying. A lot of what it traces is the movement of the American Civil Liberties Union as it's advocated for that right of sex becoming a civil liberty. But a lot of this began in the 40s and 60s. There actually used to be contemporary civic organizations that would seek to protect 
our communities from the promulgation of har- some of this harmful material like pornography. It was a was a Pacific Railroad conductor wanted access to Playboy began a suit against the local Citizens for Decent Literature. Wow, I believe is their name. Wow, <laughs> and. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the, the Supreme Court said, "This is you have a constitutional right to this, and began to sort of change some of our trajectory. There's a lot of other shifts that happened, but it's a fascinating read and something worth your time if you're interested in knowing some of the backdrop for this. And, you know, that brings a second question, Josh. It's easy for us to shrink back yeah. from that and to be so terrified. Yeah. To almost claim, I know of Christians who claim for some sort of cultural exodus for, of believers because right. of premises like that, and that's not what Scripture calls us to. Right. I, I thought we could start by looking at that and saying, what about our culture's view of sexuality is actually helpful? Yeah, yeah. I think this is an important skill is to be able to go into any particular viewpoint and say, what here, through all the bad fruit, is there anything here usable? Is there Hmm. anything here that points to the valid picture of God's creation and who he created us to be? And that's Hmm. a a skill that we have to learn. And it's one that you see on display in Paul as he goes to the Areopagus and talks about this unknown God. Sure. If you were to talk about a theology of an unknown God, you would immediately come up on heresy charges Sure. in any of our presbyteries. Uh, <laughs> as well, you should. Yeah. But, but what he sees in that, the skill he says is this is a place where you're actually beginning to touch a truth, hmm. which there is a God that you don't know, and sure. I can make him known to you. Yeah. And so, so we try to do the same thing in our culture. In what way in this, what appears to be almost completely heinous thing, is there a place where we can affirm something, even as a talking point, so that we may then address the others on the opposite side of the aisle of us on these particular issues? So I think one of the things that this culture, a culture of sexual freedom has actually done well. Sure is to affirm the goodness of sex in the sense that it is something that is pleasurable and something to be enjoyed. Absolutely. So, you know, if you were to go back and you were to look, there's a couple of guys that are really good on this. Loader, William Loader, he's got five volumes. His smallest is Making Sense of Sex, and it is an actual, like, compendium to the other four. So he'll take a paragraph or two to talk about a particular issue. And then if you want to hear about it in detail at a particular time, he'll say reference volume three, these pages to these pages, volume four, these pages to these pages. So he's super helpful in understanding what sex and sexuality was like before our modern sense of sexuality. Sure. As well as Peter Brown in Peter Brown's book, The Body and Society, I think is what it's called. So, and it's probably more along the lines of what what would be a textbook, but does give you a sense of sex and sexuality in the early church for the first three or four centuries of the church. So in the early church, you had a view of sexuality that was mutual, that there was a mutual sense of enjoyment Both men and women both enjoyed sex and sexuality. Women, contrary to what we are now, when I say this, people's eyes just, you know, bug out. People don't, they just don't believe it's true. But women at the time of Christ were considered voracious sexual animals. Hmm. People could not control their sexual appetite. Most Hmm. pornographic images, pornographic statues, pottery, there's all kinds of pornographic stuff that is in around the time of Greek and Roman culture at that point. 
but it's predominantly pictures of males. Yeah, not some females. sort of some sort of phallic reference. To yes, it. exactly. Yes. And you, you would not expect that. You would expect it, especially mm. like right now. Our biggest export as a country, or one of them, is pornography, and it's predominantly female. But back then, it was male, and one of the reasons was because males had multiple places where they could release any sort of sexual urge. They could have sex with their wives, with their slaves, with temple prostitutes where women had sex only with their husbands. That was their only choice uh, where they could have their sexual appetite fulfilled. So Paul will speak to men and women in 1 Corinthians 7 and tell them not to withhold themselves from one another. And his first address is men don't withhold yourself from your wives. Wives. In today's culture, we would have expected that to be opposite. Women don't withhold yourselves from your men. Huh. And it's because women only had the one sexual right, the only the one place where they could have sexual expression fulfillment, which is through their husband, and to do it legitimately, uh, where men had these multiple options. And men also had education. They were informed about how to control themselves. Sure. And sex and sexuality versus the kind of appetite that had to be fulfilled and satiated that we do now. There was a strong strain there that was you're giving away some of your life source, some of your life energy and essence when you engage in sex. And so you really need to be careful about who you have sex with and how often you have sex, which led ultimately to the ascetic lifestyle. Sure. Men and women who didn't have sex at all and sought kind of a higher spiritual enlightenment by sexual renunciation. Sure. But then even as you go forward, especially into the Victorian era, where Queen Victoria, in order to really shepherd and guard her reputation as a strong and pure woman, sure. began to put forward a narrative. And it's, it's hard to tell if it's her, or if it's her handlers, or who it is, but put forward this narrative of a non-sexual being, a hmm. non-sexual Victorian being. And Queen Victoria was looked up to. She was a role model for a lot of people, and especially women in that particular day and age. And so you get the Victorian sense, and the Victorian sense of sexuality is that women don't have much of a sexual appetite. They don't actually crave sex, or they shouldn't crave sex. That's a male thing. Men crave sex and sexuality. Sure. And so women's sexual appetite was largely repressed in the West following Victoria. Hmm. So where I would say that there is positiveness in our current culture is for women to recover the space that they actually enjoy sex and sexuality, Hmm. that it's okay to have a sexual appetite. Sure. And in some instances, it's okay for the woman to have a larger sexual appetite and libido than their husbands do. I would say that happens in about a third of the cases that I see in counseling. It's it's kind of a difficult thing for both people, but it can be true. That's all right. There's no moral judgment there. It's not like an extra measure of the fall that the wife would have a larger sexual appetite and the man wouldn't have the larger sexual appetite. Sure. And so I think we've imbibed a sort of colonial Christian post-Victorian view that yes. is the man is the only sexual creature and that the wife is not a sexual creature. Sure. And I want to recover space to say, no, women can have a sexual appetite. They can enjoy sex. They can initiate sex. They can have the fulfillment of pleasure of sex and sexuality that isn't just, okay, I'm doing this for my husband or I'm doing this to get kids, 
but I'm actually doing it because it's a pleasurable activity. And so I think that's the positive space from this current culture is that it's sure. recovered in the sexual revolution that women can enjoy sex. Yeah. So that is, I mean, when you look at the perspective on scripture, things like Song of Solomon, like the yes. celebration of sexual intimacy there, you look at even Adam and Eve, the joy that Adam took in knowing his wife and in scripture, there's a, it seems almost like there's this, I'll say Gnostic tendency to deny, to deny the material aspects of our of our bodily needs that's an anti-biblical perspective. Yeah, let's let's define Gnosticism yes, for a second. Yes, yes. So Gnosticism was a worldview that was coming to, I guess you could say, ascendance around the time of the development of the New Testament. And it was a worldview that essentially denied the material mm-hmm. and affirmed the spiritual. And it denied the material so bad that the, the matter was bad, the spiritual good, so that ultimately it created these pockets of... I guess you could say what you've already referenced of like ascetics yep. who said, I just need to totally destroy my body. Yeah. And I need to so deny I, so, food, deny sex, deny anything that would affirm the goodness of a physical desire. Yes. And then there were others that denied the reality of responsibility of my body to in, to liberate, I guess you could say, their spirituality, or liberate their, their material desires, or deny the, the fact that what I do with my body doesn't matter, because yep. the material's bad. Both of those are non-gospel lenses right. to look at this issue through. I, I guess what I hear is comforting about this is, as, as we consider what's positive yep. about our culture's view of sexuality, it's the idea that sex and sexuality is it's intrinsic to who we are as people. We're going to go further there in this series, but our culture has actually got something right about it in, a, in terms of a recovery yeah. of the joy of this act of intimacy. That's right. Now, the context for that, our culture has really confused yes. and about the parties involved in it, super yep. confused there. Right. But Individualistic consumerist with an expression that is whatever I want. It's smorgasbord expression. It's about me yeah, exactly. and my needs. That's where it's completely wrong and gone completely off the rails. But you do have to think if there hadn't been this sort of left turn from the culture mm-hmm. about women not being sexual beings at sure. all, would there have been as much energy in the sexual revolution? Sure. Right. They, they were on top of a truth, and that truth was is that God made this for you to be pleasurable, and not just for males to enjoy it, Yes, but for females to enjoy it. Yes, And it was the ringing of that particular truth and the energy that it got that I, I think really helped propel it forward and gave it the legitimacy hmm. that it had. And if we instead as Christians... When the culture began to say, no, 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 women don't have sexual appetite, could have challenged that and said, that's not what Paul seems to indicate. Yes. It doesn't seem to be the way it was created in Genesis 1. Yes. Right, where it was created for, at least partially created for pleasure for for two people to engage in, and therefore had stepped outside of culture with biblical truth. I think it would have undercut some of the validity and energy of the sexual revolution. Absolutely. Well, I think that that also is a reality that just forces humility in us as we think about engaging our culture in any issue as well, because it helps us to see there really is nothing new under the sun, number one, 
And it challenges our framework for how we understand God's common grace. That's that's the fact that the sun rises and sets on the wicked and the, the righteous, yep. and the, the earth isn't consumed. That people, no matter how bad our culture is, no matter what expressions of sexuality are really bad, they, are, yep. they can't deny the fact that they're image bearers and yep. that there's something of God's common grace that can even look out on the gifts of, of even our sexuality and affirm something good about it. And that's where we're going to go further in the, into that in this series. And this, we should probably even, we should have put a trigger warning at the beginning of this whole thing. <laughs> right, right. Uh, that this is going to challenge the way that we are so ingrained by this, what is essentially a narrative of shame about our sexuality. That's right. But it's, we want to bring a biblical perspective on it that offers this full picture that can affirm what's right about the cultural lens and still offer a corrective as well. That's right. <laughs>